West Covina Christian Church, uh, your home, uh, and become a member uh, beginning March 4th uh, at 9:20 in room two. Pastor Corey will be leading, uh, will be teaching uh, a membership class uh, for six weeks. Uh, so on March 4th, 9:20, room two. It's not in your uh, bulletin, so if you're interested, make sure to write this information down. March 4th, 9:20 a.m. Uh, room two, Pastor Corey will be uh, leading a, a six-week course on uh, membership and baptism. And uh, lastly, uh, before we uh, jump into our sermon, uh, Yo Maeda, uh, she was a, a dear a member of our congregation. Uh, she went home to be with the Lord, and, uh, and a service will be held uh, tentatively scheduled for uh, March 1st. Uh, at 11 a.m. So please uh, continue to keep uh, Yo Maeda uh, in your prayers. Uh, with that, uh, before we jump into the word, let me uh, pray. Let me pray for us. So go ahead and bow your heads. Lord, uh, we thank you uh, for this day that you have made, Lord. Lord, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, I thank you that you've ordained this time for us to come together and to worship. Lord, to bring glory to your name. Lord, to shatter hardened hearts. Lord, so that your love may be known by all the hearts that are in here. Lord, we thank you that everything that we do and say in here has eternal implications. So God, help us to worship with the right posture. Lord, because we are not able to do it ourselves. Lord, we are not able to worship you with our flesh, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. So Holy Spirit, open our ears to the teaching that you've prepared for us from your Holy Word. And soften our words that we may receive you. And Lord, may there be less of me. May there be less of Stephen, you, and more of Jesus Christ as your word is proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this morning uh, we continue our series through the book of Jonah. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 3. We'll be reading the entire chapter uh, from verse 1 through 10. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. If you don't have your Bibles, the verse will be projected uh, on the screen. Uh, if you're reading, if you're following along with your Bible app, we're reading from the ESV. 
So go ahead and open your Bible apps to Jonah 3 uh, from the ESV. All right, this is the Word of God. Then the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word, of, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his robes, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is the word of God. The title of today's sermon is, I want to hapak you. And if you don't know what hapak means, that's okay. We'll get into that uh, in a little bit. But in the reading of our text this morning, what we see is, we see hearts becoming exposed, right? In Jonah chapter 2, we see Jonah's heart crying out to God because of his deep remorse. Church, can you say remorse? Then in chapter 3, the text that we just read from, we see the people of Nineveh cry out to God because of their heart of repentance. Can you say repentance? Remorse versus repentance. When I look back on my life, I see the moments when my heart reflected that of Jonah's, and other times that of the Ninevites. And so this morning, I'd like to share with you a story illustrating that. My grandfather, he was born in the early 1900s in Korea, and during his early 20s, he went abroad to study in Japan. And while in Japan, my grandfather, he received a telegram from Korea stating that his mother was sick with typhoid. So he purchased, the first opportunity he got, he purchased a ticket for the first ship ride, first ship ride back to Korea because news like that often meant death was expected, that death was imminent. So he boarded a ship and in Japan, and as soon as the ship landed in Korea, he quickly hurried back to his hometown of Cheongju, and when he made it home, the first thing he did was he embraced his mother. 
He embraced his mother, but he realized that she wasn't sick, that she was alive, and that she was going about life as usual. And so surprised, my grandfather, he asked his mother, what happened? I thought you were sick. I came here all the way from Japan. I was afraid, and I thought that you might be dead. She told him that American missionaries, they came by, and they prayed for her, and they took care of her, and miraculously, she was healed. So the first opportunity my grandfather got, he dipped out of the house, and he ran around the town of Chongju looking for these American missionaries. And when he finally got a hold of them, he asked them, tell me about this God of yours that miraculously saved my mother's life. And they shared with him the gospel. They shared with him the gospel. And there my grandfather gave his life to Jesus Christ. Soon after, my grandfather, he enrolled in seminary, and he became a pastor, and pastored Todim Presbyterian Church for 30 years. My grandfather and his seven children and his wife, they immigrated to the United States during the early 1970s, and he planted a church in Monterey Park right off of Atlantic Boulevard. Of the seven children, four would go into full-time ministry, which included my father. Growing up, I was surrounded. I was surrounded by this rich heritage and this Christian upbringing. Worship services were often held at my house. Waking up to my mom singing hymns was typical. Going to church three times a week for a youth group, midweek prayer meetings, and Sunday worship service was a regular rhythm to my life. Yet, the Christian environment, the multiple weekly services, the Bible memorization from the Awana program, the singing of the hymns and the morning devotionals didn't seem to have relevance to what I was experiencing on the inside. You see, my insides, it didn't match what I saw in church or experienced at home. There was an inner turmoil that was crying out and trying to claw its way out to be released. And I can only see that in hindsight. At the age of 12, I found the release I had been craving for in a joint. By the age of 16, I was strung up on meth. And what was my source of destruction, or what was my source of release and re relief became my source of destruction. When I was 16, I was incarcerated for my addictive and violent behavior, and every Sunday my parents, they visited me. They visited me in jail. They waited in line for two hours, went through the security, and sat with me in the visitation hall for what seemed like a very short one hour. I remember one Sunday in particular, I've been crying almost every time I've been preaching up here, so excuse me. <laughs> I'm trying very hard to, <laughs> to be pastoral. <laughs> I remember one uh, particular Sunday uh, during, visit, uh, during visitation, peeping out, 
peeping out through the dim and translucent window of my jail cell. And I was eagerly waiting for my parents to come and visit me. And on this particular Sunday, I saw my parents walking towards my unit. And I noticed my mom was sobbing. She was sobbing, and with one hand, she had her hands clung to the Bible. And with the other, she was wiping her tears away, like how I'm doing right now. <laughs> and, and I saw that. And the probation officer, the security, suddenly called out my name. You, you have a visitor. So I came out, and I walked down the hall into the visitation room, where I was greeted by my parents. And my mom's appearance, it was cheerful. It was cheerful, and she embraced me with a smile. And there was no hint of her having cried. None whatsoever. After the visitation, I went back to my cell, and I fell to my knees. Because the realization of where I was, it finally hit me. One month after I was locked up. The realization of the pain I caused the people around me, it hit me. Because through the small window from my cell, I was able to get a glimpse into my mother's heart and see the reality of the pain I had caused. You see, I was filled with guilt and remorse. And in that moment, out of desperation, I prayed and I cried out to God. And there in that nine by cell, seven cell, I had my first, my first tangible encounter with the Holy Spirit. I devoured the Bible and I read the Bible, the entire Bible, in two months. And it almost felt as if when I was reading the Word of God, Scripture was coming, the, the words was coming out from the pages and it was ministering to my soul. And for the first time, I knew God was real. I knew God was real. You see, when we read the book of Jonah, the temptation for us is to read it through the grid of a children's book, right? As it goes something like this. Jonah was called by God. He disobeyed, was thrown into the sea, swallowed by a whale, came to his senses, went to the Ninevites, preached, obeyed, the Ninevites confessed, repented, and there was a revival. Jonah moped and went about his life as a prophet. Right? That's how it's usually, typically told. However, that is very far from the tone. From the tone of what the author is attempting to communicate. When we read Jonah placed within the context of the entirety of the Bible, we remember what words such as flood and storm and water allude to, right? In the Bible, Bible water is almost always a symbol of God's judgment, of God's judgment. Noah, he was called into the ark because God would send a massive flood to wipe away the depravity and the wickedness of man from the face of the earth, that was surely God's judgment, right? While the Israelites, while they escaped from the parted Red Sea, from their Egyptian captors, brought, God brought the divided waters to come back upon the Egyptians to wipe them, wipe them out. That was God's judgment. And as the waves crashed upon Jonah's 
boat. He's thrown into the violent sea, into the water, where he nearly drowns. That is God's judgment. But not only is the water from Jonah that alludes to God's judgment. Two times in Jonah 1.1 and 3.1, the author mentions the word of the Lord. He says, the word of the Lord. You see, for the original hearer and the reader, that would have caused their ears to perk up as it would call attention to the scene in the Garden of Eden whereby the word of the Lord, light came into existence. Whereby the word of the Lord, the expanse of the sky was formed. Whereby the word of the Lord, animals came to roam the earth. Whereby the word of the Lord, humans came to dwell upon the earth. God created the world through the word. And Adam and Eve were the first to enjoy this creation of God brought about by his word. They lived in this presence of God as every aspect of creation boasted of God's word. And the land, the land to which Adam and Eve were called to have dominion over and to rule over functioned as their temple garden. And their one task, their one simple task, was to expand the temple garden over the face of the earth. Isn't that right? However, we know that Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God's word, right? And judgment was bestowed upon them by God's word as they were driven from God's presence and banished from the temple garden. Their banishment was God's judgment. The phrases water, storm, and the word of the Lord should call our attention to this theme of divine judgment. Judgment against Noah. Judgment against the Ninevites. It's because of God's divine judgment that we see Jonah thrown into the sea to be swallowed by the sea creature. You see, it's not simply to redirect his steps so that he can fulfill God's mission to Nineveh. For three days he suffered, barely able to breathe, living off the nutrients of the digestive system of this disgusting sea creature in utter darkness and at the complete mercy of this creature's bowel movements. That's hell. That's judgment. You see, Jonah is surrounded by this storm and this water of the sea after having tried to escape the word of the Lord. He was immersed in God's judgment. And here's the thing about Jonah's near-death experience. God would have been absolutely just. He would have been absolutely just to leave Jonah there to let him die in the sea. The only thing that Jonah deserved was judgment and death. That is all he deserved. God was under no obligation to save his life. But solely by God's grace and mercy, God saved Jonah's life. And he had the sea creature not spit out. The author mentions he vomited Jonah from its mouth. And what do we see happen after? The same word by which God spoke the world into existence. 
came again to Jonah, telling him, Arise, go to Nineveh. And this time Jonah obeyed. Jonah obeyed. He travels to Nineveh, and with the mere eight words, in the Hebrew, it's just five. But with, the eight, with eight words in the ESV, he says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the Ninevites, they're convicted. They're convinced by this five-word message. You see, the Hebrew word for overthrown is hapak. Can you say hapak? And the root word has a double meaning. Hapak, it can mean destroy or it can mean to bring to repentance. Meaning Jonah's words, the message that he preached, could have been interpreted in two ways by its hearers. They could have heard, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned in destruction, or yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned in repentance. So the hearer of Jonah's message, they would have understood that within the prophetic word of destruction, there within lied the possibility of God's mercy if they were brought to repentance. You see, this was the message given by God to preach to to the Ninevites. Jonah, the preacher, he would have definitely understood this double meaning of hapak, not only linguistically, but experientially, right? Because he had just experienced it himself. He was overturned, nearly destroyed, casted into the depth of Sheol, crushed by the waves, consumed by the belly of the sea creature. But the judgment of God that was upon Jonah, it morphed from a hapak of destruction to a hapak of repentance, to a hapak of new life. He was saved from total destruction solely by God's mercy. Solely by God's mercy. Yet even then, that is exactly what Jonah didn't want for the Ninevites. That isn't what he wanted for the Ninevites. He wanted God to, God's word to strictly be a hapak of destruction. He wanted the Ninevites to be destroyed and overturned by God's wrath and annihilated for their wickedness. And we know that because even as he obeyed God's word and went to Nineveh to preach, he did so reluctantly because in chapter 4, verse 1, we see Jonah throwing his fist at God, becoming angry with him for showing the Ninevites mercy. You see, Jonah experienced God's judgment. He experienced God's divine judgment. And the judgment of God, it evoked within him guilt and remorse. In the face of God's judgment, Jonah was motivated by remorse and not repentance. Nowhere in Jonah chapter 2 do we hear him explicitly repenting for his disobedience. Right? He reflects on his mistakes and he regrets the sad reality of the consequence he now faces. He reflects on the goodness of God and is, is remorseful that he doesn't have God's salvation there in the belly of the fish. 
But nowhere does he cry out to God for his forgiveness or does he demonstrate a heart that's completely surrendered and given over to the care of God. Nowhere does he confess he was wrong for disobeying God's word in Jonah 2. You see, guilt and remorse are helpful emotions to move us in a new direction, right? But they're not enough to soften the hardened and and prideful heart. Jonah, he moves in a new direction, doesn't he? Finally obeying the word of God and going to Nineveh, but his heart is still rageful and it's bitter. It's full of pride and discrimination and racism. He moves in a new direction because of his guilt and remorse, but his heart is still hardened. When Jonah's message was received, when his message was received by the Ninevites and taken to heart, we see in verse 5 that the people of God, they believed God and they called for a fast, put on sackcloth, and from the greatest to the least of them did this. And in subsequent verses, we read that the king of Nineveh also believed Jonah's words and humbled himself before all his people, stepping down from his throne, removing his robe, and covering himself in sackcloth. And this king even took it further. He takes it even further and he issues a decree intensifying what the people of the land are already doing. He says not only will the people fast, not only will the people put on sackcloth, but so will animals. So will animals. He says you will not just cry out to God, but you will cry out to the one true God. What we see is that from the least, from the least to the greatest, 120,000 of the people who lived in Nineveh, they prostrated themselves in the presence of God, crying out to God for his mercy. The Ninevites turned toward repentance. And rather than experience the hapak of destruction, they experienced the hapak of repentance. You see, Jonah, he believed he had sinned. He believed he had sinned, but he hadn't come to the conviction that he was a helpless sinner. The Ninevites not only believed that they had sinned, but they had come to this conviction that they were absolutely helpless without the mercy of God. You see, Jonah, he believed in a God who can save him from the mouth of a whale when he's in trouble, but he had, a, he had not come to cling to God personally. And had not completely surrendered himself over to God. You see, Jonah, he had this religious and religious mind and conscience, but he didn't have a contrite and broken heart. What he lacked was repentance. And although he was physically saved from death, we see Jonah still drowning in the hapak of self-destruction because of his pride and arrogance. You see, repentance isn't merely a turning away from one direction and then turning towards God because that's what Jonah did. He stopped disobeying the word of God. He stopped running away. He started towards where God wanted him, yet it was a life unchanged. 
You see, true repentance, it not only, it's not only the act of stopping something that's dishonoring to God, but it's the beginning of bearing fruit in one's life. Repentance without an increase in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Do you know what that is? That's the act of making amends for your guilt and remorse. And that isn't what God wants from us. Because Christ already made the amends for your guilt and for your remorse. He was nailed to the cross for your guilt. Every sin you have committed, he was nailed to the cross for it. What God desires from us is our heart. He desires our heart. He desires a hapak of repentance so that with our heart, he can give us new life. A changed life. And that's exactly what Jonah was unwilling to surrender. Isn't it true, as we've been going through this series on Jonah, we, with Jonah, we, we smell this stench of self-righteousness, right? This self-righteous prayer that's fueled by guilt and remorse. But in the Ninevites' repentance, in these so-called heathens, these so-called wicked men and women, these Gentiles, what we find is the mercy of God in their grief and their complete surrender. And with their external acts of fasting and putting on sackcloth, shouting out to God in prayer, we can almost see them laying out their hearts before the Lord and saying, God, take it. It's yours. You see, the purpose of this juxtaposition is not to expose Jonah as the one we should not follow or one that we should condemn. The purpose of this juxtaposition is to expose the condition of our own heart. You see, do we repent from a broken and contrite spirit? Or do we cry out to God in guilt and remorse? In Joel 2, the Lord says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. In Psalm 51, David, he sings, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. With the church growth movement during the 2000s, we saw many programs exploding uh, into the scenes of the church. You guys probably weren't alive yet. <laughs> you were probably still in the belly of your daddy, okay? We saw these new programs exploding into the scenes of the church, right? This new product will change the way you do church, Watch your church double in size in less than 30 days. Your youth group will love this new and revolutionary ministry toolkit. Train your leaders with our leadership development team. And what we saw, what we saw is that with all these new methods and programs, many churches fell into the habit of going through the motions of doing church for the sake of church growth. 
right? And, and yes, sure, it's a good cause to grow the church, but what we find is that so many people, especially the millennial generation, they became disillusioned with the hollowness of church activities. And similarly, in our relationship with the Lord, we can also be caught up in this habit of going through the motions when it comes to repenting of our sins. It's something we do when we pray for our meal. Thank you, Jesus, for this food. Oh, and thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Right? Or when we do, when we do something regretful. Jesus, I'm so sorry, I promise never to do it again. And in light of the consequences and the possibility of God's judgment, we cower. So we pray from a heart of guilt and remorse, and we keep praying until we're vomited out of the fish. And after a few days of altered behavior, of being good, we go right back at it, just as Jonah did. And what we find is that our prayer of repentance is mechanical, and 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years later, we find ourselves asking God to forgive us of the same sin, we keep, we, of the same sin that we've been committing all these years. And our prayer of repentance becomes a habit of going through the motion motivated by our guilt and remorse, something that God never intended for us. You see, Jonah, he suffered from what Oswald Chambers, Chambers called spiritual lust. Jonah, he demanded. He demanded a lot of things from God. He demanded God to distribute mercy to those whom he found just. Right? Jonah demanded God to spit him out of the whale. Jonah demanded an answer from God to why he showed the Ninevites mercy. You see, Jonah was demanding from God instead of seeking God himself. In a prayer that stems from regret, of remorse, there's this constant insistence that God should answer us and save us from our circumstances. However, in a, in a prayer that stems from repentance, from genuine repentance, there's a posture of surrender and an attempt to get a hold of God, not just with our hands, but with our heart. When I was locked up, I was motivated by guilt and remorse. That was my motivation. And wanting to claw my way out of the belly of the jail cell, I cried out to God. Yet, because of God's mercy, because of His grace, because of His loving kindness, He still met me and allowed me to encounter His presence. When I was released, I went back to the same addictive and self-destructive behavior. And I felt conflicted. I felt conflicted because I wanted to do good. I wanted to do good. I wanted to be a good Christian. I wanted to live a righteous life. And I wanted to honor my parents, especially after what I had put them through. But I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop the habitual nature of my sinning. So I ran from God altogether. And for seven years, I abandoned the church. Yet God didn't abandon me. Out of desperation, seven years after, I came crawling back through the church doors, looking for help. And I was filled with 
guilt and shame and remorse. One of the first people I met was a guy whose name is Michael. He was a missionary who was on an extended furlough, and he became my mentor. And for two years, we met every week. Every week we met. And almost every week that we would meet, he'd ask me the same question. I kid you not. He'd ask me the same question. Stephen, why are you trying so hard to stop sinning? Why are you trying so hard to stop sinning? And almost every week, I gave him the same answer. Because I don't like the way it makes me feel. I'm tired of carrying this guilt and this shame because I want to be a good Christian. And week after week, he'd ask me this, this, this question. And I'd give, I'd give him the same answer. And every week I'd come in to the office to meet with him in this miserable state because I just couldn't stop the habitual nature of my sins. But Michael never judged me. He was always patient, never giving me the easy way out by giving me an answer to my problems. He kept asking me, trusting in the Holy Spirit to work in my heart. One Sunday as we were meeting, Michael, he asked me this question again. Stephen, why is it so hard for you to stop sinning? Oh, why is it so important for you to stop sinning? Why do you put so much effort to stop sinning? And for some reason in that moment, I was hit with a clearer understanding of the question behind his question. I realized that what Michael was asking me was, why are you trying to exert your own righteousness? Why are you trying so hard to overcome something you have absolutely no power over? Don't you know Jesus already did it for you? You see, and in that moment when I had that understanding, the depth of God's grace had a new and profound understanding in my heart. You see, I had sung amazing grace all my life. I grew up hearing those words, amazing grace. But in that moment, this phrase, amazing grace, it sunk, it sunk deep into my heart as I realized that God loves me in spite of my addictive behavior. That I don't have to earn my badge of honor as a Christian. And all these years, I had been giving him my hand saying, here's what I can do to you to make amends for my guilt and for my remorse. Here's how I can prove that I'm good enough to be a Christian. And in that moment, I gave the Lord my heart. I gave him my heart. I put down my defenses towards God as I sensed him telling me, Stephen, you're good enough. You're good enough. For the first time, I could see that his love for me is not dependent on how good I was or how clean I was or how sinless I was, but that his love for me is dependent strictly on the character of who he is and on the work of Jesus Christ upon Calvary. And I repented. I repented for trying to be God. 
I repented for trying to be in control of my destiny, for trying to control my righteousness, for trying to control my self-worth, for trying to control my life. And there, I experienced a freedom I had never known by giving my heart to Jesus, and not only my hands. And from that moment, a natural shift began in my life. I began shifting my effort of trying so hard not to sin to accepting His grace into my life. And you know what happened? You know what happened? That's when the fruit began to bear. When I stopped trying. When I gave up. When I admitted defeat. When I surrendered my heart over to Christ to let Him do with it as He wishes. That's when love increased. That's when joy, peace, gentleness, self-control increased. That's when I lost the desire to be so dependent on addictive substances. You see, the Christian journey, it consists of this ongoing rhythm of repentance. There's no shortcut. Repentance, it not only happens in the face of temptation, or, but after, after we fall, after we fall hard, when we fall short, when we mess up, because the devil, what he'll do is he'll stand right there and he'll whisper to you, here you go again looking at that on your computer. Here you go again smoking what you promised never to smoke. Here you go again picking up that bottle. How are you going to ask God for repentance again? Here you go again sleeping with your girlfriend, with your boyfriend. Here you go again. Here you, that is what the devil's going to do to you. He's going to whisper these things and he's going to try to rob you of your repentance. He'll try to suck you back into guilt and remorse and he'll try to, fe- and, and try to feed you the lie that you have to make amends with your guilt, for your guilt. The lie that you have to earn the righteousness, your righteousness, for your remorseful actions. And when we're confronted, when we're confronted with that lie, all we need to do is repent and give our hearts over to the Lord, as the Ninevites did. And we entrust Christ with our heart. Trusting that Christ took upon the cross our shame and our guilt. And we continue walking in this rhythm of repentance and this rhythm of grace. Repentance is not a one-time act. It's not a once-a-week act. It's not a every-time-we-pray-for-our-meal act. It's not an act we do every time we face temptation or we mess up. It's a posture. Repentance is a posture that we take. You know what will happen? In time, we'll find ourselves no longer striving for holiness, but surrendering our broken and helpless selves to Christ's holiness. The Lord, He says to us this morning, I want to hapak you. He wants to overturn you towards repentance. He wants to turn your mourning into dancing. 
He wants to turn your destructive path into a new life. He wants to surround you not with judgment, but with mercy. So the question for you, for us this morning is, will you allow the good Lord to hapak you to repentance? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's, um, let's take a moment to uh, just bow our heads and to stay in the silence. To stay in the silence and just to hear what the Holy Spirit is, is saying to you in light of this message of remorse versus repentance. And let's just hear the Lord saying to us, I want to hapak you to repentance to bring you new life. So let's take a couple, let's take about a minute just to sit in the Lord's presence and hear what the Lord desires to say to you. <laughs> 